Now, when you think of it, I want you to remember to pray for the teenagers in our church. The teen years are difficult, aren't they? Some of you remember that. Uh, you have, going through your teen years, hormonal moodiness and bodily changes. And you feel awkward and you begin to smell at the wrong times. Uh, you have peer pressure and exhaustion from lack of sleep and a desire to be independent when you're not really independent. You start struggling with emotional control. There's the problem of girls and boys, depending on if you're a girl or a boy, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, there's heartbreak that comes with those problems. And then there's school and all the classwork and then sports and whether you're a good athlete or not. And then your parents transform before your eyes and go from being somewhat cool to being very uncool and maybe even kind of dumb. I remember my teen years fondly, actually. I, I enjoyed them. I'm probably uh, unusual that way. I even remember Marine Corps boot camp a little fondly, so maybe that's just me. I'm no judge. Uh, maybe you had a more difficult time. Maybe your experience is more like fights with your peers and struggles with your parents. And maybe you felt bullied. Maybe you had difficulty fitting in. Maybe you felt ostracized. I just didn't have any of those things. Uh, and if you did, please know I'm not making light of those things. But for me, truly, the worst parts of high school were the little things like forgetting a test or losing a game or even just getting into trouble with my teachers. Now, I was thinking about what, what the memories do I have of, of being in high school where I really had trouble? And this is what I came up with, all right? Now, time for a little honesty among you. How many of you in biology class actually saw what you were supposed to see when you slid that little slide under the microscope? Raise your hand. You saw what the teacher wanted you to see. All of you. Right, great. I did not. Okay, in fact, I, this is kind of what I remember. Here's the biology teacher talking about the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, right? I, I did learn something. And, and here I am trying to figure out how to put that little slide under the little metal clasps that are in the microscope. And I'm <clears throat> still trying to figure that out. And he's going, now, don't you see the mitochondria here? You see the cell wall? And I'm going, I don't see anything. In fact, it's just kind of all opaque and a blur. And, and I've got the little thing on the little wheel on the side, and I'm doing this kind of thing, trying to figure out how to get it into focus, really frustrated and realizing this is why I will never be a doctor right here. I mean, the hope of ever going into medicine is lost, you know, because I just can't see what he's describing, and that's why I didn't choose the medical field, you know. I mean, um, <laughs> Uh, if I were a doctor, I would say things like, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, but your tests show you've been deceased for 13 years. That's the best kind of thing I could do, I think. I just knew medicine wasn't for me because I couldn't get the microscope to work. Now, maybe you can identify with that, but maybe it's a different subject like math or science or history or English or PE. Yeah, uh-huh. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. But, for, but I think um, for me, the best class I had was Bible, and I probably should have realized what kind of profession I would go into 
In fact, uh, I would sit and read my Bible in high school, and I would say, you know, this actually makes sense to me. Um, I should, I just should have known. If I'm acing Bible tests 40 years ago, I'm probably going to end up be working in Bible in some Bible-related field. In fact, the only Bible tests I ever had trouble with were the ones that were written by people who weren't actually talking about the Bible. They were talking about their own interpretations of the Bible. Well, I didn't care about their interpretations. I don't care now. I didn't care then. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's just kind of the way it is. But I, I just didn't have trouble really understanding the Bible, at least the simple things of it at that age. Now, for me, Christianity has always kind of made sense. But that's not true for everybody. Like someone struggling to get a little slide under the microscope, there are a lot of people who look at the Bible or they look at Christianity and they just say, this, this, is, this is nonsensical. I'm lost, literally lost, but they're lost. They don't understand it. I've witnessed to hundreds of people who have trouble thinking through the doctrines of Scripture. They can't understand grace. They don't understand it at all. They, they don't understand what the Bible means when it talks about grace. And because of that, they look at people who are Christians and they think, well, they're spiritually blind. And they think we're crazy or they think we're part of a cult. And, and they don't understand that what we really are is a spiritual family. Connected to each other through the gospel and they don't understand that because of that, our lives are about doing God's will. You see, this is point number one. The world cannot understand who we are. Some believe our faith is unreasonable. Look at verse 20 again. Here's the multitude, right? Jesus has this huge crowd following him. And, and it's so large, it says, they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he's beside himself. Now, th this is because, all of this is occurring because these people here mentioned, they don't understand Jesus' priorities. Jesus prioritized his work. Mark 1, go back just a little bit, you see what Jesus is doing. Look down in verse 14. After John the Baptist was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, now the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and preach and believe the gospel. You must repent. You must believe the gospel. That's the work of Jesus. That was his priority. Go over to chapter 2 and verse 17. We have here, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are whole or who are well do not need a doctor. They don't need the physician, but they who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, this is why I'm here. I'm here to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus was all about prioritizing his task. But these people, they think that his priorities were overruling his human needs, and they saw that as a problem. So here's the crowd, the multitude. They've gathered around Jesus' house where he lives here, and, and it prevented, the crowd is so large, it prevented Jesus from actually being able to eat any food. 
And now it says here in verse 20, it says he could not even eat bread. So whatever is going on here, the people are crowding him. He has so much work to do, he has to put aside what you would normally do as part of your human patterns of living. He's not eating, he's not sleeping like you normally would. He's actually just exhausting himself by doing his work. And this is Jesus's pattern, friends. Jesus's priorities for doing the will of God, always came before his own human needs. You find him out uh, at the middle of the night. Instead of being asleep, he's praying to the Father for strength and wisdom and help. You, you remember the story of him at the Jacob's well in John 4, and the woman comes from Samaria to draw water. And where are the disciples? They're out trying to get food. And after he talks to the woman at the well and she runs back, they, they come back to him, and he says, I have meat to eat that you don't know about. And they thought he got food from somewhere. Because for them, it was all about human needs, human priorities. But for Jesus, it was always about spiritual needs and spiritual priorities. So he lost sleep. He lost rest, mental rest, and often went hungry because for him, it was about doing his spiritual priorities. And my friends, people who live like that the world thinks they're crazy. That's insane. And so you have here then, in verse 21, those who are closest to Jesus actually here believe he has lost his mind. Now, I've said before, we're not King James only. This is one of the reasons. The word friends here is a really horrible translation. Um, Friends here is, is the word this, to be beside. It's, it's not the word for friend. The, the, the Greek text, and it doesn't matter which Greek text you're using of all the existing Greek manuscripts here, um, it's all the person who's alongside you. So if you have a modern translation, it probably says family. Um, but a couple of more older translations will say the word friends. The reason it says fr family there, and that's probably the right answer, is because this is called an intercalation. What you have is, uh, um, that's why I said you had to think today. Uh, you Mark uses a story, then he puts in another story totally unrelated or somewhat related, and then he comes back to his original story. And he does that to create suspense, and in this case, to give time in the reader's mind for his family to travel from when they hear about what he's doing to get to him to actually claim him, which is kind of the end of the story. So, so Mark has... Kind of a beginning story, a different story, and then a, and then a kind of the repeat of the older story, and that's why uh, there the translators, the modern translators, are looking at this saying, "Well, uh, this is probably family because they they recognize this is an intercalation, and then what Mark is doing is he's tell repeating the older story in the in the end of it, which is his family, his brothers, his mother." So right, rightly so, this is probably the word family, not friends. Now, when you see that, here's what you realize. You have this word family, and his family is the one who believes he's out of his mind. And you go, but wait a minute, there is family. How can his family actually think he's out of his mind? His actions are so uh, abnormal to human behavior that they go, he, he's acting crazy but uh, this is what causes them to pick up and go from where they're living to where Jesus is living in Capernaum. They're actually going to go find him. And this is what 
happens, the world looks at Christians. Even some Christians look at Christians and say, Christianity is crazy. Well, that's not the worst charge. Because remember, Mark is going to pull in a totally different story, and the story he pulls in, it's not just that Christianity is crazy. There are some who believe Christianity is a cult. This is letter B. Others think our faith is a cult. Now look at verse 22. Here's the new story. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the prince of devils he casts out devils. You see, they believe Jesus is a cult leader. And they acknowledge that Jesus has power over demons. They don't have any problem with that. They've seen him cast out demons. They know that. But they don't want to admit that this power comes from God the Father. That would be a problem, right? So they, they don't, thought, they don't uh, accept John the Baptist's preaching, and they don't accept Jesus' preaching. And so they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus' power comes from God, because if they do that, then they have to acknowledge who Jesus is. And they're never going to do that. So they've got to come up with another answer. And they think they've come up with a good one, which is, well, of course, he can cast out demons because he's using the power of the prince of demons to cast out these demons. And so they refer to Beelzebul. Now, once again, we have uh, a, probably a poor translation here. The translation Beelzebub is a reference to an Old Testament alteration of the word Beelzebul. Beelzebul means to be the lord of the temple. Uh, it would have been the leader of false gods. And it was a name for Satan. Beelzebub, similar in English, but a little different. You got that different ending. It actually means lord of filth. And what happened in the Old Testament is, rightly so, God's people recognize that Satan is the lord of filth. And they altered his name just a little bit in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament here, some, some people you know, translating this translated as to the Old Testament word, not to the actual word Beelzebul. So understand, this is a reference to Satan. And here, this reference to Satan is a false god of the Canaanites called the prince of devils or demons. And their argument is, is literally Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. In fact, at the very end, it says, they said he has an unclean spirit at the end of the story. They, they are claiming Jesus is going up to people with unclean spirits and he's casting out their unclean spirit because he himself has an unclean spirit. And just like the world looks at us and says, you know, Christianity's crazy. The world also has very blasphemous thoughts about Jesus. Jesus takes this in. He must have been chuckling a little bit inside his own, own head here because he points out the illogic of their argument. Their argument is just dumb. I mean, I mean, if you're debating in high school and you came up with an argument like this, you'd be laughed out of the debate. It's just ridiculous. Jesus points out, Satan never does anything against himself. Why would he? This makes no sense. A division within Satan would cause the possibility that he could be overthrown. And Satan's never going to do anything that puts himself into jeopardy. I mean, and he uses these parables, right? Is Satan going to cast out Satan? Can a kingdom really be divided against itself and stand? What's the answer to that? Obviously, no. 
And if a house is divided against itself, can the house stand? Obviously no. So he says, how can Satan be against Satan? Then, then he adds something even better. He, he says, you know how I've been casting out demons? He then answers with another parable. He says, you go into the strong man's house, and before you... Strong man, right? Beefy guy, really strong, big. Before you go into his house and you steal all his stuff, you better put him in chains first. You have to bind the strong man. Now, how many of you would say you're a strong man? Anybody want... All of you high school people who could see the things in the microscope. Any of you strong men, right? Yeah, I'm, I, I probably wouldn't say that of myself either, right? But we're, we're not strong men. Maybe some of you younger men would say I'm a strong man. Who, who binds a strong man? Somebody who's really strong. So, so they're saying I'm casting out demons by, by, by being indwelt by Satan. He says, no, 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 no. Not only does that not make any sense, let me tell you something. Who goes into the strong man's house and steals his goods, it's somebody stronger than the strong man. So now Jesus is taking it one step further. Not only am I not using Satan to cast out devils, I'm stronger than Satan. And they're thinking he's a cult. He's a leader of a cult. And so now Jesus does something that really is remarkable here because he's been defending himself up to this point and explaining how he's able to do these things. But now he goes further and he says, you are in danger of eternal damnation by your blasphemy. And he says here some really interesting things. God forgives most blasphemies. This is well past what the scribes believe. I mean, they, they say if a person blasphemes, they're guilty of death. Remember later when they say Jesus blasphemes at his trial, they rip their clothes. What else do we have to prove? He's worthy of death, right? They say... They say that blasphemy is worthy of death, but God forgives blasphemy. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, have I committed the impardonable sin? And, and I always respond to that by basically saying, if you're concerned that you've committed the impardonable sin, you haven't committed it. Because the people who commit this kind of sin are people who are actually ascribing to God the things of Satan. They're calling evil good and good evil. These are the kind of people who say the Bible teaches us that abortion is a good thing. That's blasphemy. These are the kind of people who says God is in favor of wickedness. That's blasphemy. And anybody who says that Jesus is actually of Satan, that is blasphemy. The kind that Jesus says will not be forgiven. God does not call these people to salvation. And it doesn't quite, quite fit into the way we think of God because we all want to think God you know, loves everybody. He does love the world in, in kind of a general sense. We understand that. We want to think that God loves each individual. But friends, there are people who have so rebelled against God. They have so turned their backs on God that there is no longer any hope for them. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people. You ascribe Satan's works to me. You are blaspheming in a way that cannot be forgiven. Now, I want you to understand, my friends, this is what the world looks. They look at us and they see us and they say, you're crazy and you're part of a cult. 
And I think the application of here of this passage is pretty simple. Are you okay with that? Are you are you okay with the world looking at you and saying you don't fit in? Because as the world is getting darker, the light is becoming more obvious. And those who follow Jesus become more apparent in the darkness. If, if you'd lived your kind of Christian life a hundred years ago, you'd had very little opposition in your world. In fact, most people, they, they may not have agreed with you in terms of what the Bible means, but they would have agreed enough to where it would have been okay. If you'd done this 200 years ago, you probably would have been applauded, at least in our country. But today, and in increasing days, that is changing, and you need to be at a place where you're okay of standing up with Jesus when the world says you're crazy or you're part of a cult. You need to say it's all right. Because it really brings me to my second point. You see, when you're willing to be misunderstood like Jesus, even though the world misunderstands, we're the family. And we are among others who are also misunderstood. That's the blessing of church. That's the blessing of God's people. This is point number two. We're a family of believers who do God's will. So while the world is out there and they're doing their thing, they're fulfilling their own lusts and pleasures, they're following after their own way, we here together, a small band of people, are standing alone saying, no, that's wrong, this is right, you're thinking wrong, this is the right way of thinking, because we're committed ourselves to following God and to doing His will. So it's easy for me to say, human relationships, this is letter A, are not the basis of our faith. It's not, it's not about human relationships at all. Here in verse 31, you know, we have the second, the second part of this story. So we find out who the friends are, right? The friends here, those who are closest to him, that's what the Greek word says, the words, those who are closest to him, they're his brethren and his mother. They finally arrive on the scene in verse 31, and they're standing outside the house, and they're calling, Jesus! Hey, Jesus, can you come outside? We want to talk with you. We've come here to basically take you home because you're crazy. And the multitude sat about him and they said to him, can you hear that? Your mother and your brethren, your brothers are outside and they're seeking for you. And he answered them saying in verse 33, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, Jesus' earthly family was not the Lord's primary concern. And again, this sounds a little weird to our way of thinking. Mark is picking this passage up from earlier. These families had time to travel now to where Jesus is staying, and now his brothers and his mom are outside. This is Mary. She's standing outside this house calling for her son to come out. Remember, their priorities are totally different from his. In fact, this has always kind of been the case. They, his own parents didn't really understand him. I mean, remember the story of when they go to the temple when he's, what, 12 years old? They show up at the temple, and Jesus starts confounding the scribes at the temple. The, the priests there are just going, how does he have all this wisdom? This doesn't make any sense. He's not one of our students. He's not one of our pupils uh, or disciples. That's what literally it would be. He's not one of them. So how does he know all this? How does he understand this? And then, of course, then Joseph and Mary, they start going back to to Nazareth and on their way back home, they go, we've lost Jesus. How many parents here have ever had that feeling, right? I mean, 
I have. You know, we we left church and left one of the kids behind. I mean, you kind of run back for them. Uh, so they turn around, they take the journey. It's, they've been traveling more, maybe more than a day. They have to go back. They start searching for Jesus. They finally end up right where he was when they left him. And he's sitting there and he's confounding these people. He's, he's just say, making statements that, that God would know that they don't know. And, and the parents are upset with Jesus. And they say, you know, what are you doing to us? As any parent would be. I mean, is there any parent here, if you had Jesus for a son, you wouldn't have said this to them? I would have. Are you, are you aware of what's going on around you? And then Jesus looks at them and say, are you aware of what's going on around you? <laughs> and they weren't. I mean, I mean, really, from the time Jesus is a young boy to his adulthood, Jesus is setting his face toward the cross. And all of the people around him, even later his own disciples, even his closest disciples, Peter, is going to say, be it far from you. But this whole time, Jesus has his face and he's setting it for the cross. He has a priority. I have come to save sinners. Everything else is secondary. And so now Jesus is here and his mother and his brothers are outside and, and, and all the people around him, he's doing his ministry, and all the people around him are saying, don't you hear what they're yelling at you? You know, they're calling for you. And so Jesus then looks at them and he says, let me ask you a question about family. Who is my mother? Who's my mom? Who are my brothers? This is not disrespect for Mary. Jesus would not have disrespected his mother but it is demonstrating that there's a higher loyalty to a spiritual family. I'm going to tell you something that in modern Christianity, this, in American modern Christianity, this doesn't fit very well. You, you come from the East and you know, some of you are from India and other places East, you know when you turn to Christ uh, out of Hinduism or some other religion, you turn to Christ, you often lose family. You lose family. I, I have talked with people from other cultures who tell me, if I get baptized, my mom and dad will never speak to me again. Now, we just don't understand that here, right? I mean, we have a baptism. It, people will show up from all over the place, even ones who aren't Christians, to see somebody get baptized. It's you know some kind of cultural event, but that's not the way they see it. And, and it's really not the way it is. And so he, he, Jesus says, who's my mother? I'm not disrespecting my mom. I want you to understand, I have a spiritual family that's on a higher level than my physical family. Who are my brothers? And this is not about blood. This is about the gospel. The gospel puts us together. And, and friends, this is a key marker of discipleship. Do you remember, we're going to see this later in Mark chapter 10. Where, where the whole idea of a disciple is one who leaves his family for Jesus' sake. Or in Luke chapter 9, a guy comes to Jesus. Jesus says, come follow me. He says, I have to first go back and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. It sounds so disrespectful. But there is a higher level of commitment when you're a follower of Jesus. Because our first priority, this is letter B, our first priority is doing God's will. This is kind of where this whole passage is landing. 
All of this has been kind of revolving around to land at this spot. This is who we are. This is what a Christian is. It may seem crazy to the world. It may seem cultish to other people, but we are here to do the will of the Father. So he looks around at them. This is the people sitting around him at mealtime, right? Or they're not eating, I guess, what would have been mealtime. They're all just kind of standing there. And Jesus says, look, look around. Behold, my mothers, my brothers, for whosoever will do the will of God, the same as my brother, my sister, and my mother. The closest to Jesus are those who are followers of God, who actually are ordering their life in godliness. This is why it is so important, my friends, for you to keep a partition in your mind to say, I love my family and I'm going to do anything I can for them outside of something evil or sinful. I get that. Or you could say, I love my friendships, my friends, and that's good. But you keep that partition in your mind because you know this, your highest allegiance, your highest loyalty is to God. That comes first. Now, and I'm going to tell you that in application, for most of us, it's pretty simple. We just go, okay, all right, highest loyalty to God. But if you're living in a situation where you really are immersed in a world of unbelievers, you have a lot of unbelievers around you, it becomes more difficult. Aaron and I were talking about this last night on the telephone because I have a bunch of undergraduate students at Maranatha and I ask them difficult questions. It's kind of fun. I like playing with them, you know. I ask them a question, and then they think they know the answer, and they're so sure of themselves, and they, they blurt out their answer. Well, they type it out. And then I type back another question, and they go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. So then they, and they but they, they're sure of themselves. Remember this. And they go, I hadn't thought about that. So then they type out another, I'm very sure of myself answer. So then I ask another question. And by the end, they're not sure of themselves at all. And I say, that's okay. Keep thinking, you know. Because I'm sure somebody with much more knowledge than me could do this to me, so I have to be kind at the end. You know, somebody out there who's way beyond where I am could play could play with me like that. So I, I'm trying to be kind, you know. But it's they're brand new. They're just kind of learning Christianity. And so you're just kind of playing with them. And Aaron and I were talking about this, and he made the statement to me last night on the phone. Here's what he said. He says, you know, I'm thinking about those students that you have. Until they get out of that little bubble, they really don't understand what life is. He lives his entire world immersed in a world of unbelievers. They all drink alcohol. I mean, to drunkenness. His word, staggering drunkenness. That's just the world he lives in. Uh, they gamble their money away. And they, they live in immoral, wicked, gross sin relationships outside of marriage. You understand what I'm talking about? This is, what, this is the world he lives in. And he doesn't live that way. I mean, hey, the other night they had this big, they call it mess. It's dinner. And a uh, female Marine was sitting next to him and said to him, Hey, uh, Walker, you don't drink. Can I have your wine glass? He goes, uh, you know, Aaron, you know, kind of, uh, I'm sure. 
And she just wanted to get two drinks. <laughs> you know, that's the world he lives in. But then she said to him, and that was the important thing. She said, you don't drink. See, he's just let it be known. I don't do this kind of thing. And, and I'm going to tell you, that's ostracizing. That's hard. You don't fit in. You're not part of the group. To actually stand up and say, I live like Jesus. And again, if you're, if you're living in a Christian community, like what I grew up in, you live in that Christian community, nobody else does either, so it's no big deal. But you live among unbelievers. It's hard to do that. And you have to say, I am going to do God's will. You know, you go to Christian college, you may not have this trouble. You go to a secular college, you probably will. Because you're going to be immersed among people who don't follow Jesus. And now you have to follow Jesus. And say, I'm here to do the will of God. And that's my highest priority. And that's what Jesus is saying. There is nothing greater for you than to be a follower of God. And so he looks at all these people nearby and he says, do you want to know who the people who really are closest to me, my real friends, to use the translation here in my Bible? Do you know the people who are my real family, my mothers and my brothers, all of you who are following me as God has called you to do, who have repented of sins and who actually said, I will follow after Jesus. You are my mothers. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. We're family. And even though they dispersed from him at the cross, he never gave up on them because they're family. They're Jesus' family. And so you realize then, as part of God's family, your calling is to do the Father's will. That should be your highest goal. Friends, that should be your highest goal. That God has a plan for you. It's not hidden. There's this whole idea about God's will that God, you know, God doesn't let you know. You've got to seek for it. Well, you do have to pray for wisdom. I get that. But God isn't up there going, do my will or I will condemn you, but I'm not going to show it to you either. What kind of, what kind of horrible God would that be? No, God teaches you what he wants you to do right here in his word. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So it's pretty easy. I follow God's word. The applications aren't always so easy, but the easy thing is understanding what God wants me to do. He has a plan for me. It's what he wants me to do. And the will of God is connected to the nature of God. God is wise. He is loving. And he enables me by his power to obey him. So as the master potter, he is shaping and molding my life so that I will be exactly what he wants, whatever kind of vessel that is. And for some people, it's a real special treasured vessel. For some, it's just kind of a clay pot that used to hold old stuff, old shoes, old papers, whatever. It's just a cardboard box. But whatever it is, you are following and doing what God wants you to do. That's your highest goal. And so it may be, that what God wants you to do is simply be the best stay-at-home mom. The best stay-at-home mom that you can be. Or maybe what God wants you to do is work at your local public school PTA and be a light in a dark place. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. Or maybe God wants you to work in a business somewhere and be able to be a witness to your co-workers and show them what Jesus is. Do you see what I'm saying? My highest goal is to follow God's will. And whatever that is, it, and it could be in any capacity as long as it's a, a godly one. God designs 
to control. It's not just you, it's the church too. He's doing that with our church. And, and all of that is better than what we want. If you really understand that my highest goal is to follow God's will, understand that's the best possible outcome. So whatever it seems like in life, that's where the joy is. Like the woman who, uh, whose husband wrote his eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. That's uh, one of, one of a, fav- a favorite hymn. Hasn't been sung here in a long time, but that's a beautiful hymn. Well, there's a cu- couple, a Christian couple, pastor and his wife, lived their whole life serving the Lord, didn't have any money, as is sometimes the case. They didn't have anything. So in retirement, they ended up in a government-run healthcare facility. And it was not very nice. They had a room together, but it was not very nice. I'm not even sure it was entirely private. It just wasn't nice. And the man was kind of grousing one day about life. And his wife said, well, no, honey. If his eye is on the sparrows, then I know he's watching me too. And that's when he, this gentleman picked up his pen and wrote the hymn. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's exactly what we're talking about here. My highest goal is to follow God. My highest goal is to bring him glory. My highest goal is to do whatever he wants. My role is his plan for me. So you may never achieve in life what you hoped to achieve. It's really okay if you're doing what he wants you to do because that's what he wants. I don't want my tire on my car to wish itself to be something other than a tire. Or that would be bad. But I'm just a plain old tire. Just be the best tire you can be, please. I don't have to buy another one. And God wills it for you too. I'm to live that out. It's not a struggle to know it. It's just a struggle to do it. Whatever God wants, that's what I must do. And I have that respect. Those are responsibilities I have that come from him. You know, and for me right now, it means to be a pastor, but that may not always be the case. Right? I might get too old, too infirm, a little too crazy, a little too eccentric. There may come a time where you just say, he can't do it anymore. It's time to step down. That's fine. That day may come. I have diabetes. I could lose my eyesight. I could lose my ability to pastor. That's fine. That's in God's will. You just do what God wants you to do today and you throw yourself at it saying that's my highest goal. And friends, when you do that, that's when you realize we're connected together. Our closest family are others who also follow Christ. This is our mom. This is our brother. This is our sister. This is our father. Our spiritual community is the family and you become a family member by by being in Christ and the gospel and then you become a good family member by doing God's will. So I ask you, are you part of the family? If you're outside of Christ, you're not part of this family. You're, you're just not. You may want to be, but you're not. Maybe other people think you are, but you're not. But if you're committed to doing the Father's will, then not only are you part of the family, then you're, part, you're the good part of the family. And for children, I'm going to tell you right now, for most of you kids, listen to me, your job doing the Father's will is to obey your parents. It's pretty simple. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Bingo. That was simple. You have no other job. One job, obey your parents. How are you doing? Are you doing a good job being 
a good member of God's family? Young adults, your choices about college and career and friendships and even personal convictions. Listen, that's, that's all part of this. You say, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, to do these kinds of things that other people do around me because I know it's sinful. I'm not going to participate in that. Or, or I'm, I'm not going to make friendships with people who are going to tear me down spiritually or my career, unless I'm trying to witness to them, or my career, it's going to be honoring to the Lord. And even choosing a college and a major in the college, I'm going to consult God first. It's not about money. It's not about those kinds of things. It's, but God, what do you want me to do? And then adults, are you committed to doing God's will? What's your lifestyle like? Is it all about, okay, God, you come first, or is it about me and what I want? And that even goes for retirees. You say, I've lived my whole life. I've been in church. I've been doing what God wants me to do. But you still have time. You're still here. Do what God wants you to do. The world thinks that's crazy. And God says, it's family. Be part of God's family. Let's pray. Lord.